Well, happy Tuesday. Welcome back from the long weekend. Uh, as I mentioned in my newsletter this morning, if you had managed to check out, which I highly um, you know, ad- advise, uh, if you had managed to check out from the, the news cycle, you re- return today and find that uh, pretty much everything is the same as it was before you left. Um, with the, the NRA continues uh, to be clown itself, although that seems like an inappropriate word. Uh, Joe Biden uh, continues to, uh, you know, say things about uh, weapons in Ukraine that uh, the White House needs to uh, clarify and uh, walk back. And Marjorie Taylor Greene continues to spin batshit crazy conspiracy theories. So I thought that we would start off by, you know, using using Mar- I, 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 I think we have to have a quota for Marjorie Taylor Greene. I do understand this. We can't do this on a daily basis. But coming back from the long weekend, I did think that we needed a palate cleanser. So in case you missed it, here is Marjorie Taylor Greene with her latest paranoid conspiracy theories about cheeseburger eating and bowel movements. And I kid you not. You have to accept the fact that the government totally wants to provide surveillance on every part of your life. They want to know when you're eating. They want to know if you're eating a cheeseburger, which is very bad because Bill Gates wants you to eat his fake meat that grows in a peach tree dish. So you'll probably get a little zap inside your body and that's saying, no, no, don't eat a real cheeseburger. You need to eat the fake the fake burger, the fake meat from Bill Gates. Um, they probably also want to know when you go to the bathroom and if your bowel movements are are on time or consistent. Oh, my. Uh, our guest today is Ryan Bussey, who's a former executive of the firearms industry, the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry uh, That Radicalized America. So first of all, uh, happy Tuesday morning, Ryan. Charlie, peach tree dish. Are you effing kidding me? Peach tree dish. That that's what jumped out at me. Um, is the is the it's not just the paranoia because I've kind of gotten used to that. The Bill Gates wants to control your bowel movements. Okay, that's like same old, same old. It's that they invented they develop it in the peach tree dish. Is this 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 is what the Republicans now accept as the intellectual heft of the party? I mean, I don't hear Mitch McConnell out there decrying peach tree dishes and bowel movement no. uh, monitoring. I, I don't know. There are just no more eyes to roll. I was like, my, my eyes have become tired of doing all of this. They, they are all of our cringe, cringe reflexes, I think, have been have been worn out. And Marjorie Taylor Greene out there. And and the, and the fact is that, OK, so we have to make reference to this is the woman who gave us the gazpacho police. She will pay no political price for this whatsoever. For people who think, well, this is really embarrassing, people are going to, you know, be a little bit chagrined to be associated with her. No, no. Um, the more we talk about it, the more we criticize her, the more money she's going to raise, the more power she has within the Republican caucus. And Kevin McCarthy, see, this is the, the thing about Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It's laughable. And yet Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives and very likely the next, well, he would like to be the next speaker of uh, the House of Representatives, lives in mortal terror of this woman. I mean, yeah, I want well, you to think about that. I know we're going to get into guns here oh, and, yeah. and everything, but um, she's also well known, uh, as you may know, for her favorite gun, which is the Q. Yes, the QAnon AR-15. There is such a thing. Um, she's no. filmed a, she, yeah, she's filmed a video with her and her Q AR-15. No, no. Yes. No, mm-hmm. no, no. Yep. There's, there's actually a Q AR-15. Yep. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. What is it? Uh, it's actually a pistol brace gun. Um, 
uh, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, is a big fan as well. It's got a great big Q right on the side of the uh, gun. Yeah. It's manufactured. I mean, so how did it become the Q? I'm sorry here, but I mean, the Q yes. gun. Um, yes, it's the is, Q. Is, it's the who, Q gun. Does somebody manufacture it and market it as the Q gun, or 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 is is this like an aftermarket? No, it's manufactured as as the Q gun. If if you just Google Q AR fifteen, um, you'll you'll see it. I I just I I need to give up now. I'm sorry. I just <laughs> mm-hmm. well, it's for, it's the it's the gun you need to take to the pizza parlor where the sex slaves are in the basement that doesn't have a basement. But yes. Okay, I, w- I wish this was actually funny, but you know, part of this is, and we we need to get into this. And I think this was on display over the weekend at the, the NRA convention. You really cannot talk about the new gun culture without talking about the culture wars, without talking about this culture of paranoia and weirdness, which has now become inseparable from the gun culture, which, which was not always the case, right? I mean, it's it's become part of this. This stew, yeah, uh, that makes it, it makes makes a toxic situation even more unbelievably toxic. Well, and you know the story of my book and my life. I spent, for those who don't know, I spent twenty five years inside the firearms industry. I was a celebrated executive. I grew up with guns on a ranch. They're an integral part of my life, but they've never been a part of my life like they're a part of the GOP life now, um, and it frightens me. And I guess Charlie, I. I'm going to chicken or egg you a little bit here. I believe that this craziness that we're now living with, this radicalization across the entire GOP, and sadly it's infected much of our politics, was actually cooked up and developed by the NRA, certainly starting after Columbine, but then really as we, as in 2007, as Barack Obama began to lead in the polls. And I, I think that all of the things we deal with now in right-wing politics, all were developed by the NRA. Um, the trolling, the radicalization. I mentioned QAnon, right? But I, mm-hmm. I, I, I've been at many NRA conventions where they spouted off these crazy assertions, like Barack Obama is going to rewrite the Constitution. I thought, well, that's weird. And then I look around and I see all these executives clapping and agreeing. And so when Q, you know, many years later, when Q starts to do the drops and people believe insane things like Marjorie Taylor Greene, I'm like, well, I, I saw that coming, you know. So I think it was all developed by the firearms industry. Well, because paranoia is a sales uh, is a sales tool, isn't it? I mean, to get people concerned that you need to buy guns because X, Y, and Z will happen to you. That if you don't buy the gun this week, you might not be able to buy it next week. Uh, who's ever in power has a plan to take away your guns, take away your freedom. All of these things require you to arm up. Yeah, it's a never end. It's it's like a it's a, like a self perpetuating storm, right? I mean, if you think of the most tumultuous time any of us have lived through, certainly in our recent lives, the period between January 1st, 2020 and January 7th, 2021. That's about a 12-month period. The conspiracy theory could not have been higher. COVID, George Floyd, protest, Black Lives Matter, counter-protest, shootings, closures. I just keep going on, right? And the, the fear in society was palpable. That also corresponds with the very highest gun sales ever in the history of our country by a long shot. About 25 million guns were sold in that in that 12-month period. And so it's not an accident that, you know, any any sales executive, any NRA official can see, wait a second, fear and conspiracy sells guns. Let's it roll. Works. It, you works. Know? it works. It yeah. works. So your 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 subtitle is interesting to me. The book is Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. 
So let's dial back a little bit because one of the the discussions that we often have on on this on this podcast is is what's new and what is old. There are people who say, well, no, the NRA was always like this. The gun industry was always like this. And I think that you make the point, and at least I, I'm old enough to remember when this was not necessarily the case. So before the gun industry radicalized the country, it was radicalized. So I, I want to I, so want to w- yeah. walk back to the yeah. beginning because as as you explain, and and this is what's important because, you know, you you are not from an anti gun culture. Your dad taught you to shoot as a boy in in Kansas, you know. Um, so you have long experience with with guns, and your dream job was at uh, the firearms manufacturer uh, Kimber uh, Kimber was the, by your description, the Tiffany of the industry, the maker of the higher end, more expensive guns, you know, less likely to be used in crime. So you were on the, you felt that you were on the right side of this unspoken line of bifurcation. That's what you believed at the time. Yeah. I'll give you a few examples about why this is so important. And it tells a story about how our country got here. Well, up until about 2006 or seven, um, the firearms industry itself would not allow tactical gear, like the vest worn by the Buffalo shooter, um, helmets like the helmet worn by the Buffalo shooter, um, any tactical gear, gloves, helmets, anything, the basic stuff, and almost no AR-15s, no tactical rifles could be displayed in its own industry trade show. That wasn't a law. These were self-imposed rules and norms. Exactly. And and, and Charlie, I've heard you talk about this a thousand times if I've heard it once. The same sort of self-imposed norms once applied to our politics, right? There was a time when you didn't tweet out uh, memes about you know, representatives killing other representatives. Um, Paul Gosart apparently, you know, has done away with that norm. But the same sort of norm breaking happened in the firearms industry because those those rules and regulations were self-imposed. There was no law. They knew that propagating this stuff into society willy-nilly, as it, as it has happened now, would prove to have very disastrous consequences. And you know what? It's proving to have very disastrous consequences. Those norms are are ripping the country apart. Well, you you point out that you know even 15 years ago, these these norms were enforced by groups like the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which we're going to get back to them in a moment. You wrote a piece for the Bulwark recently where you point out that you know back in the you know 1990s there was no partnership uh, between the industry and, and right wing movements. There was not, not a, you know own own the the libs thing, um, but. You describe the evolution of the industry. So, yeah, you know, talk to me about this. I, I, I have the, this New York Times report that, you know, talks about your your shift that, that you that it crystallized for you in 2010 at an NRA convention in Charlotte, North Carolina, when you saw this uh, poster advertising the Bushmaster AR-15 uh, style rifle that said, Consider your man card reissued. So, so talk to me about the man card and 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 the rise of that at, at that period. Well, I'm going to back up just a bit and sure. then we'll get to that. Um, the the industry, the NRA started to become radicalized. The NRA itself started to become radicalized certainly after 1999 in Columbine. We now know of um, conversations that were had behind the scenes and tapes that have been uncovered by enterprising reporters where the NRA literally debated, should we be a part of the solution or are we now in the culture war business? So they chose the culture war business. And that and the NRA kind of went along on its own for a few years. And then um, about 2005 or 2006, the industry started to realize what we just talked about. Wait a second, this culture war business, hey, 
this is pretty good for gun sales, you know? Um, and about that same time, AR-15s and tactical gear started to be propagated. Norms started breaking down and they started to be propagated and proliferated by the industry into society, even though they knew not very many years ago that that was a wrong thing to do. So once that started rolling, then the company started getting bigger. Then business started booming. AR-15s went from one or two companies in the in the industry to over 500 AR-15 companies in the industry. And what do you do when there's 500 companies all building, for all intents and purposes, what is the same gun? Well, you figure out ways to set yourself apart. And Bushmaster decided that they would set themselves apart with this aggressive incendiary campaign that essentially indicated that prior to purchasing the Bushmaster XM-15, you had no man card. And if you purchased the Bushmaster XM15, your man card would oh, be issued. Man. And it is so detestable. They literally even mailed you a man card. And it would say things like, it, and, and you read it now, from it's from 2010, and you read it, and it's like you're reading the description of the protesters that are you know barging into the Michigan Capitol with AR-15s. It, sa- it basically says, like, now that you have this, you don't have to take any shit from anybody. I mean- it's, it's about it's about 50 words, but that's a basically what it says. That's the gun that was used by a 19-year-old kid in Sandy Hook. In your book, and I think what makes this book uh, compelling and also stands apart from uh, some of the other critiques is that you admit you're not an innocent bystander in all of oh, this. Oh, hell no. No, I've got regrets. Uh, so, I mean, sure. and let's go back to this radicalization. You know, at 1999, when Smith and Wesson reached an agreement uh, after Columbine, uh, the Columbine shooting, to add safety measures to the guns, things like trigger locks, you describe how you successfully organized dozens of gun dealers to boycott the company. This is after two gunmen killed 13 people. So, take me into what your thinking was back then. Because you were also somewhat, or do, well, I'll ask you, were you also kind of radicalized? Were you in the us versus them mentality back then? Why do you yeah, do that? So I think it's important for readers. Now, first off, I, I don't sugarcoat um, what happened in the mm-hmm. industry or what I did. Um, and I look back at that now and I think, yeah, I think, I think I was radicalized. I didn't feel it at the time, but it's really important for me now as I do the work that I'm doing and I, and I speak with you and I talk about this book that people know, look, I know how this happens. I've been there. I know how easy it is. And the key for me back then was that the NRA is in, in the Rush Limbaugh's of the world and the, and the sort of Alex Jones's of the world. They're really good at tapping into something that is very important to people and then twisting it and making it fearful. And for me, the culture that I grew up with, this farm and ranch culture, this, you know, kids with guns and just, I, they were healthy parts of my life, right? They were, a gun was my conduit to get away from things and to hunt with my father and to have fun and to target shoot with my brother. There was never anything bad. And then the NRA convinced me like, uh, you know, the evil libs want to come get these things. And Bill Clinton is the worst thing that ever happened to gun ownership. And then, and then boom, up on a stage pops the CEO of Smith and Wesson in a surprise move. He's announcing a, a settlement with the Clinton administration that the firearms industry and the NRA said, "Holy crap! If this happens, it's going to be it's going to radically decrease gun sales in America." I liken it to what I did, much like kids. 18, 17, 18 year old kids in the World War II generation must have done. Like you didn't ask, you just like rush, rush to the table and sign up for war. 
Like there's no asking. You, once you believe in your culture and that it's under threat, you just rush into it. And I did that. And I very successfully organized a boycott against Smith & Wesson. And we almost ran Smith & Wesson out of business. They sold for $15 million after that. The, the, the Schultz, the CEO, lost his job in 2000. To give you an idea how that played out, in 2016, the market cap of Smith & Wesson was $1.69 billion. So they sold for $15 million, and then their market cap was $1.69 billion. So, yeah. So let's stay, let's stick with this because this is fascinating, particularly the way you you describe you know the, the tribalization you know the that that mentality. What was Smith and Wesson's great crime? Was it the trigger locks or was it doing business with the devil? Was was it this? They what what was the trigger for you and and for others that the fact that they would actually do business with the Clinton administration? Yeah, doing business with the devil at all, yeah. but in doing so, we had been told that. Gun ownership, gun sales, everything was under threat. It could all go away. All this stuff we were working with, the culture of your childhood, it could all go away. And so the NRA instituted, it's so similar to Trumpism, it's just frightening, but they instituted this thought and this conspiracy in people that we must now support every single thing that makes it easier to buy guns, and we must detest every single thing that makes it harder to buy guns. So trigger locks, marketing restrictions, safety measures at stores, those all make it harder to buy guns. Not not world-changingly so, but marginally so. And so if you if you fast forward all the way till today and wonder why the entire Republican Party and the entire uh, gun industry, NRA, the NSSF, everybody supports every single thing that makes it easier to buy guns, they do, and detest every single thing that makes it harder to sell guns, they do. That's where it started. So let's talk about um, your career again and what caused you eventually to break and become an outspoken critic of the gun culture and the gun industry. Let's do that right after this. I hope you all had a great Memorial Day weekend. I know that I did. Uh, we had uh, family and friends uh, out to the Lake Cottage. And of course, because this is Wisconsin, we fire up the grill. And because I had a package from Omaha Steaks, we were able to have a great time. I have to tell you how much everybody enjoyed the entire selection. So here's a little bit of gift-giving wisdom from Omaha Steaks. Dads want steaks. And with Father's Day just around the corner, there's not a better gift than Omaha Steaks. Trust me. Visit omahasteaks.com, type Bulwark in the search bar, and order the Dad's Want Steaks package. For just $99, this limited-time package includes 16 mouth-watering entrees that he's guaranteed to love, like smoky, tender, bacon-wrapped filet mignon, gourmet jumbo franks, and their air-chilled boneless chicken breasts. And for a sweet finish, delicious caramel apple tartlets. I, I Look, I'm getting hungry just thinking about them, and I have to say that these were a big hit over the last weekend, and you cannot beat the price. And as a special gift for my listeners, when you type Bulwark in the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package, you'll also get eight, eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. These burgers are full of bold, beefy flavor made from 100% Omaha Steaks, and now they're bigger than ever at a whopping six ounces. Look, don't wait. Send Dad more than just one gift. Send him an experience he's just going to love and he can share with you. So go to omahasteaks.com and type Bulwark into the search bar. Order the Dad's Want Steaks package. You'll get 16 entrees, four desserts, plus eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. Omaha Steaks isn't just steak. It's the best steak of your life, guaranteed. That's omahasteaks.com, keyword bulwark. 
Okay, we are back with uh, Ryan Bossy, who's got an extraordinary new book out, uh, Gunfight, My Battle uh, Against the Industry That Radicalized America. And so you describe where you were at the end of, uh, of the 1900s when you began to have doubts about the man card in, uh, in 2010. Uh, let's talk about the Sandy Hook massacre in 2012. I, I will admit that broke me. That that broke my my tribal links that I, to the extent that I had any at all to uh, to the, the the Second Amendment movement. You had you know 20 kids, six adults murdered. Um, your reaction? I mean, like a lot of Americans, you assumed that like something had to give after Sandy Hook, right? So that something was going to change. Every single executive in the firearms industry looked around their offices after Sandy Hook and said you know, essentially, holy shit, yeah. this is horrible. If something doesn't happen after this, it never will. Like everybody thought it would. And I, and, and I certainly did. I had long since broken with the NRA. Um, I was already uh, working, doing everything I could. I was a, a critic and working behind the scenes to weaken them every chance I could. That happened for me in, in 2002, three and four. But, um, by the time we got to 2012, December 14th, 2012, I remember the day very well. My kids were exactly the same age as those Sandy Hook kids. Um, yeah, Charlie, I mean, how, how could any decent person, any decent person not be broken by that? And yet nothing happened. Nothing. And yet nothing happened. And, and worse, something was about ready to happen. The NRA allowed backroom debate. And I tell this story in my book because I was working with a prominent U.S. senator um, on this when it happened. And the NRA decided, eh, screw it. We're going to score this. Meaning score means they're going to use it as ammo against any moderate Republicans or any Democrats that are going to vote for it. So the NRA said they're going to score it. That killed Manchin Toomey. That was the amendment then that would have strengthened background checks. Really the most modest, Right. come on, the most it, it, it's hardly mentionable. It's so modest, but they, they used that after Sandy Hook. And if anybody needs any proof of the nefarious evil nature of the NRA, even when 21 kids are killed, you can't even extend so, background checks. So explain to me, why did they make that decision? Because it would have been um, a prudent decision for them to say, okay, let's give on this to show that we are reasonable at a time of just massive outcry. Why did they decide to go completely absolutist at that moment? Because after the 1999 Columbine shooting, um, the story of which is in my book, the NRA decided they're not in the gun rights business. I know it looks like they're in the gun rights business. I know they say they're in the gun rights business. They knew full well they're in the culture war business. Mm -hmm. And culture war 101 is you yeah. don't give an inch. You use these things to build the culture war. So they sniffed out, I mean, forget about the policy, forget about the kids. They knew they could screw a few moderate Democrats and a few moderate Republicans that would vote for this and it would build their partisan power. And they did. And it did. So you stayed in the gun industry, though. I, I stayed. Yep. You know, and you know what? I was stubborn. And I, and I have, I've thought about this a lot. I haven't considered myself in any way conservative or Republican since early, you know, 2002 or maybe even before. So a long time ago, 20 years ago. And I think a lot about what all of you never Trump Republicans, yeah. um, I call you, you know, <laughs> I'm saying that pejoratively, right? But the Bill right. Crystals and the David Frums and the Charlie Sykes and the, yeah, and, yeah. and people who I now respect immensely. But I think of this question you asked me the same way that you must get that question. Like, absolutely. but Charlie, you stayed, Ab you know? Absolutely. And I, and I, 
I've come to respect you an awful lot because the reason I stayed, I think is a lot of the reason you stayed like, and it, and it was basically went like this, like bullshit. You're not taking this over this. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't have to do it this way. You, you people are crazy. This is evil. I'm staying, I'm fighting. It's going to be my way, not yours. And I tried, mm-hmm. I threw wrenches. I did everything I could. And I never made any secret. I wasn't supportive of what the NRA was doing. So it's a little different than people in the Republican party, but I totally get the, you know, why you stay and why you fight. Cause you don't want to give it up. Well, that's right. And also there's just the inertia of, of doing it. You know, you, this is, this is, you've devoted years and years and years to this. It's not easy to walk away as you have discovered, because when you eventually walked away, who it was in 2020. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you, and you began writing this book, you joined up with the Giffords group uh, and you are now excommunicated. You are considered a pariah. You, we mentioned earlier this national sports shooting foundation. Who are they, by the way? Just, so the NSSF, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, is the industry trade group for okay. the entire industry. So like every gun and ammo company, basically every gun equipment company belongs to the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Okay. So yeah. So you, you've become a target for them. They've attacked them. As you point out, they don't say anything about Kyle Rittenhouse or, you know, armed men menacing uh, the Capitol. But, uh, you know, you are, you've been cast into outer darkness. Uh, Don, Donald Trump Jr. has said yeah. you've now become a useful idiot. I take um, I take great pleasure in that, Charlie. I take great pleasure in him calling. I mean, seriously, that's like Michael Phelps saying you're a good swimmer. Come on. Okay, but now you you still. I mean, obviously, you are still a gun owner. This is, by the way, one of the points that I have I've, I've made, and I I think I think you you sh- you share this is that is that there is a real gap out there, an unexploited gap between responsible gun owners. And the NRA. There are people who uh, are responsible, who are into gun safety, who will shoot with your kids, who will hunt. You still own a lot of guns. And I think there are tens of millions of Americans who are gun owners, who support the Second Amendment, who are still not for, for whom the NRA does not speak. And I think you're for, absolutely right. For some reason, that uh, that gap hasn't been weaponized to use, well, to use the wrong word you know i'm i'm trying to beat on the wedge there's yeah. no doubt about it i don't make any bones about that and i heard you talking about this on friday with tim yeah um i think you are exactly right and the response to my book i will tell you gives me some although we're all going to have some dark days because I, I don't think we're done with buffaloes and you've all these oh, I, I think there's just too too much out there but the response to my book does give me some measure of hope because i thought like i Charlie, I live in a red area. I live in northwestern Montana. I was worried about my boys going to school. We were worried about snipers above our house. We were literally worried about our physical safety, our digital safety, as you might guess. I'm I'm sure you've gone through this sort of stuff. Um, The response to the book is exactly opposite what I thought. Instead of 100 to 1 trolls to praise, it's 100 to 1 praise to trolls. And there's lots of lefties, call me, sure. But there's tons of moderate center-right, center-left gun owners who are calling saying, thank God, I can't take it anymore. I grew up with guns. I own guns. My dad owns guns, whatever the story is. And it's gone too far. Um, I want to keep those freedoms, but this is crazy. We can't have this January 6th stuff. This radicalization is going to rip the country apart. Like I hear it all the time. And so I know what you say about these millions of people who are sort of silently out there. Um, You know, Steve Schmidt called them the the growing frustrated majority. Like Mm -hmm. I, I really feel them. 
So this is this is the the other question I have is the 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 NRA itself has been beset with one scandal after another, deeply divided. The whole battle between Wayne LaPierre and Oliver North. There was a moment in which it looked like it was imploding. The stories about the multi-million dollar houses that uh, that uh, that Wayne LaPierre was buying for himself. I mean, they just you know every aspect of the grift was exposed, and yet. It keeps motoring on, or or does it? Give me your sense of the it state does. of the NRA right now. What you know, because obviously a lot of focus on the big convention over the weekend in Houston. What is the state of the NRA? How does it keep going despite one scandal, one grift after another? Again, as the through line in my book indicates, like there's so much similarity between this and the GOP mm-hmm. now. You could ask yourself the same exact thing about about Trump and Trumpism, right? Like, well, he didn't win the election yeah. and he's down there in Mar-a-Lago and surely that stuff's gone away and he doesn't have that much influence. I'm like, newsflash here, um, Trump controls the party, as I, as I keep hearing you make the case for yeah. so mm-hmm. many times. And the NRA is the same way. Yes, Wayne LaPierre is a, is a grifting mess. Yes, they've had scandal after scandal. Yes, they're weakened. But do you think their members care? Hell no. The same way that people don't care. I mean, if if Trump was indicted on 17, uh, 17 charges tomorrow, do you think his most fervent fans would care? Hell no. And that's where the NRA, no matter how weak it is, NRA-ism is here for a while, just like Trump and Trump-ism is here for a while. And they continue to lean into, to go back to a point that you made, which I think is, is crucial, is in order to understand the new NRA and understand that they see themselves um, as culture warriors, they have inserted themselves into every other issue out there because they understand how this turmoil and this fear works in their favor. And in that sense, I also think that they're aligned with uh, with both the radicalized right and with Donald Trump, who had, I think you uh, you pointed this out to NPR uh, recently, is that Trump himself uh, viscerally understood the power of you know turmoil, conspiracy, hatred, and 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 what it would mean to have a a population that looked around and said, you know what, I um, I am under siege, I am under threat, they are coming for me. Look, the NRA figured out before Trump did that um, if you get a populace ginned up fearful. I use the analogy, let's hold them one degree below boiling, right? Have you ever looked at water when it's one degree below boiling? Like it almost wants to jump out of the pan, right? It's mm-hmm. And Trump viscerally understood and the NRA first viscerally understood that if you got a group of people to that point and just held them there and held them there, they would do irrational things and and they would believe irrational things and they would be fearful and frightened and you could mold them in your hand because they're ready to jump at a moment's notice. And the NRA did that they perfected it, and then they handed it right off to Trump and Trumpism. And and here we are today. You write, there's a reason why troubled 18-year-olds can buy assault rifles, body armor, and high-capacity magazines. There's a reason why racism, conspiracies, and increasingly dangerous idolatry infects parts of the country. And federal gun uh, legislation is stalled time and again. It is the gun lobby, the NRA, the NSSF, and the politicians who are frightened of them. Um, and I think that you know, that, that's almost inarguable. But let's go to that last phrase, there, the politicians who are frightened of them. Um, every Republican politician will explain why they don't stand up against Trumpism, why they don't stand up against the election deniers, why they're afraid to criticize QAnon, why they're afraid to break with the IRA. But 
going back to this question of the of the frustrated majority, are they right? Is it possible? I mean, is there a glimmer of hope that politician at some point a politician who stood up and said, you know what, uh, I am with you 80 percent of the way, but this is nuts. Um, we need to raise the age for buying guns. We need to have background checks. Uh, red flag laws are are, are are legitimate and 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 actually succeed. I, this is, I, well, I guess, I'm, I'm coming back to something I talked to with Tim on Friday. The yep. sense that 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 the NRA has got a little bit of Wizard of the Oz, uh, a Wizard of Oz uh, quality to it. That if they were actually face down and challenged, that they are not as powerful as they would pretend to be. What do so you think? I think you're. I, I do think you're onto something, and I believe. Fast forward a bit and say, well, does that really is. Is there a path for that in the Republican Party? Let's ask Liz Cheney. Doesn't look good. Let's ask Adam Kinzinger. Doesn't seem so good there. Yeah. But I think, and I make the case, and I've made I made it in that article, Guardian article, the article I wrote for you, for you on the Bulwark. Yeah. Um, this is the issue where it started. Guns play a much larger role in our politics than the than the typical pollsters and the right. and the DC think tanks think. Like this is this you live in Wisconsin, you get right. it. This over it has this overarching societal meaning, and I believe that w- the guns wound us into this, and guns are going to unwind us. And I do think that if I don't think somebody can just jump up and a uh, Republican just jump up and criticize the party, but I do think you could start with the issue where it started, and there. meaning guns. No Republican mom, none want to take her, drop her kids off at school and worry about if they're going to get shot. Not a single one. Um, I mean, come on, we agree on that, right? So um, I'm waiting for a brave Republican elected or group of them to start identifying with those Republican moms who don't want to drop their kids off at school and worry about them. How hard is that really? And I think you're right. The NRA has convinced everybody that gun owners are this great big monolith of people who will stand behind them and say hell no to everything. I don't, I simply don't believe it. I'm with you on this. I don't believe it. Well, and there's one data point for people who think that we're engaging in wish casting here. The reminder that we got over the weekend that that somebody as deplorable as Rick Scott, when he was the Republican governor of Florida, signed into law red flag law in Florida after one of the, the shootings. I mean, clearly you had Republicans in Florida, at least pre Ron DeSantis, who were willing to say no to the NRA. I remember here in Wisconsin where the Republican legislature resisted the NRA's push at that time for no permit constitutional carry of concealed weapons. They said, no, I'm sorry, we we favor concealed carry, but you have to have some sort of background check. You have to have some sort of, of permit. And they, they blew the NRA. They paid no political price for defying the NRA. Yeah. And I, and I think that can happen again. And I, and you know, the reason that the industry is trying to suck every bit of oxygen away from me and my book and that Donald Trump Jr. calls me whatever name he is. I really believe they understand how incredibly important this mythology around the unanimity around guns and extremism and everything is to the, to the story they're selling. To, to you, you know, we mentioned politicians being scared of the NRA. They're scared of the NRA because they bought this fallacy, this fallacy that that the opposite of what you just described is true. And it, it just simply isn't true. You know, that Donald Trump Jr. and, Don, I mean, Trump spoke at the NRA convention just a couple of days ago, right? Or he mumbled or emitted word salad or whatever you want to call it. I don't know if it was spoke. But, um, you know, Trump Jr. is best buddies with half of the industry executives. This isn't because 
for any other reason than they fully viscerally understand in, in that lizard brain, as you often say, mm-hmm. something that the Democrats don't get. And that is this issue of guns and freedom and patriotism and everything else that's wrapped up around the NRA and guns is central to their political power. I think this is actually true. And I was, as, as you were talking about, um, you know, the power of the guns to shape our politics, uh, I would say that in in a state like Wisconsin, it's it is possible that the gun issue will be more powerful than, for example, the abortion issue, because in Wisconsin, um, the number of people who have guns is a lot greater than the number of people who are concerned, who, who will actually exercise the right. I just don't know. So I want to ask you another question, though. You tweeted. I, I guess I, I'm still trying to get some sense of like what's going on inside the minds of the people who are doing this, the people who fetishize the guns. I mean, maybe there's nothing going on whatsoever. Maybe they don't, you know, uh, think about it. But I mean, you were part of the gun industry. You know, other people who are part of the gun industry. You tweeted about this new JR-15 for kids that yeah. looks, feels, and operates just like mom's and dad's gun. And then there's that that since-deleted tweet from Daniel Defense. Yeah. They, they, which, which is just, when I first saw it, I thought it was a spoof. This is a gun manufacturer. They manufactured the gun that was used in uh, in the murders in uh, in Uvalde. And yep. it's a picture of a very small child holding, um, a, is it an AR-15? Yeah. Holding, you know, an AR-15 with the clip out. And it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. So Proverbs you have this, verse. Right. So you quote a Bible verse to sell this weapon of war in a photo of a small child. So I want to impart on people, <laughs> certainly, and I, and I, I have so much in common with all the, all the Bulwark listeners, and I'm, and I'm sure you're very proud of the degree mm-hmm. to which this is a smart audience, right? Yeah, um, yeah. This is critically important to understand. The firearms industry and the radicalization around it is very much like a badly gerrymandered congressional district. They have set up an echo chamber with incentives that pull them only one way. We started off by talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene, where she will pay no price for the Republican Party. Why? Because she's in a badly gerrymandered congressional district. It will only get worse. The firearms industry will only get worse unless responsible gun owners stand up and say, I have had enough of this shit. And the the two things that you mentioned are very illustrative. I, ne- I never thought I would see a JR-15. For, and the name of the company, by the way, is We One Tactical, W-E-E One Tactical, as in little, oh, little kid tactical. Me. And this, this, the logos for the gun are a little baby skeleton boy with the skull and crossbones and a little baby skeleton girl with skull and crossbones, the We One Tactical. Then the Daniel Defense social media post that you mentioned, you have, I mean, come on, that's the quiet part out loud. That's the loud part out loud. It's white Christian nationalism wrapped around a $2,000 AR-15 that was just used to kill 19 kids in in a school. I mean, they're not even, they are not even hiding what is going on here. And so it, I don't believe that decent, responsible, reasonable gun owners are down with this shit. I simply don't. We have, but people, I'm sorry, like me, like you, like we have to stand up and say, no, there's a better way. We have to break that hold. And that's what I'm trying to do. So uh, the, part of the angle of this also, it, which you just touched on though, is, is, is the way in which this has become conflated with religious faith, um, Christian nationalism, and 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 that's a dangerous that's a dangerous combination as as well. We have a piece in the Bulwark about uh, 
you know, the Christian nationalism and the cult of the AR-15 and the fact that you know, Doug Mastriano, who's now the Republican uh, candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, is is really very much a part of this gun-worshipping sect. And that's also scary because that that takes you beyond the realm of of pragmatism and, you know, come let us reason together and come up with a compromise if it is, you know, Jesus and, my, and Jesus and guns, right? It's, it's not just the man card. It's also now the Jesus card. It's the, that's the rod of iron ministries. It's in Pennsylvania. Um, it's owned by, it, it's owned and run by Justin or by the moon family, um, as in Sung Young Moon, that they really? they have a yes they have a cult I read the article and I I know a lot about this the company the the gun company that is behind this is a voting valued celebrated member for the NSSF for the shooting industry this is not some outlier right <laughs> the, the, they are in the industry they're a voting member of the industry trade group and they have at that conference this will be the second or third one like Steve Bannon was a keynote speaker last year I mean, you couldn't get any more batshit crazy, and they're out there just showing it to God and everybody, or, or, or Jesus and everybody, or whatever. And the, the rod of iron, which is what they, which is what this thing's named, the rod of iron ministries. That 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 comes from a Bible verse as well. So what does it take to change this? I mean, I would like to think that there is that moment at which, you know, the dead children, the massacre of the innocents will cause people like the owners of, you know, Daniel Arms or whatever to go, oh, my God, you know, honey, what are we doing? What have we done? You know, how can we how can we make uh, make up for this? That seems increasingly unlikely to happen because it hasn't happened so far. So what does it take? Well, I I think it's going to take the same thing that's going to take to either dissolve or fix or whatever, modify the Republican party. This is now bubbling up from below. I mean, I think Trump rightfully gets a lot of credit for how he molded and used it and kind of led it. But um, as you and I both know, it's really, it's really the base of the party. It's the troops, it's the rank and file that make this all work. And that's the exact same thing in the firearms industry. Again, the, the similar, the parallels are just like, they're, they're like dead nuts parallel. So what's it going to take? The, the millions of responsible gun owners that you described and you believe are out there, and I do too, for them to stand up and say, okay, I'm done buying the conspiracy. I'm done with the NRA craziness. I don't believe it anymore. And I, and I make this point. Um, every freedom we have in a complex democracy must be balanced with corresponding responsibility. And conservatives used to be the poster child of this. They used to believe this. Now, apparently, we can have maximum freedoms and no responsibility. And I got news for you. No democracy is going to exist with that kind of setup. We have to stand up and say enough is enough. The book is Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America by Ryan Bussey. It is an incredible read, uh, but also important insights into understanding the way in which uh, the culture war has formed the gun industry and the gun industry has formed the culture war. I wonder whether at some point when people you know, realize that they are being played, that there is this vested interest in making them fearful and angry and paranoid and believing these conspiracy theories. Once people understand the way they're being manipulated, they would push back. But again, I guess we've been doing this so long that feels naive to even think about that, uh, Ryan. But again, great book. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for the work you do. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.